Well, it's great to be back with you one more week. So we're going to wrap up our series today. And just like the last couple weeks that I've been here, there is a handout for you. So if you're on the end of an aisle, look under you. There's a stack of papers. Grab one and pass it down. So last week we covered the Old Testament. This week we're going to cover the New Testament. So lots to, lots to cover today. It should be a lot of fun. Just to catch you back up, and for those of you who haven't been here over the last few weeks, um, we're doing a series called Cover to Cover. And the goal of Cover to Cover is to walk you through the entire story of the Bible from cover to cover in three sermons. And so during the first two sermons, we, we covered quite a lot of the Bible, the entire Old Testament. And if you, if you look over here, and let me put this on the board as well on the screen, um, we have taken the entire story of the Bible and divided it into nine words. If you know these nine words, you know the Bible. You, you know the big idea of how the story unfolds in the Bible. So during the first week, we looked at what we've called the botched beginning. It began well with God's loving creation of this world as a gift for us. He gave us this world. He made us in his image to enjoy his world and rule it on his behalf. So at the end of chapter one, creation, everything was very good, but then we botched it. Humanity revolted against God. We chose sin. We chose pride. We wanted to take the place of God. And that revolt brought death in all of its forms. Death entered the human race. And yet God didn't give up on us. He made an incredible promise. That's chapter three, a promise to fix what we had broken, to conquer our enemy and deliver us from sin. And that promise focuses on one particular family, the family of Abraham, with whom God made an irrevocable covenant, promising land, seed, and blessing. And the remainder of the Bible is about how God is keeping that promise. Two weeks ago, we got into the messy middle of Scripture, which is the bulk of the Old Testament, almost all of it. And we divided it up again into three chapters. We looked at the law, God's gift of the Mosaic Covenant to the people of Israel. It was a gift because the Mosaic Covenant told them exactly what they needed to do in their lifetime to get to cash in on those amazing Abrahamic Covenant blessings. If they wanted to enjoy God's blessings in this life, they just had to keep the rules of the law. The problem was the law told them what to do. It didn't give them the desire to do it. And humans do what they desire to do. So Israel didn't obey. That's why the Old Testament is so bleak. After giving the law, we entered a new chapter called the King, where God chose a man named David and made an irrevocable covenant with him called the Davidic covenant. God promised that David would, it would be his family that would rule the nation of Israel forever. But to enjoy that covenant, to enjoy its blessings, what did David's children have to do? They had to obey the law. All through the Old Testament, we keep going back to the law. To enjoy the Davidic covenant in this life, they had to obey, and they did not. And so David's descendants were kicked off the throne for a while. The nation of Israel fell into the exile. They were kicked off their land. It was an incredibly dark period in the Old Testament. And yet in the midst of that darkness, chapter 6, God gave hope. Hope in the form of a new covenant that would be better than the Mosaic covenant in every way. It would replace the Mosaic covenant. It would bring forgiveness of sins once and for all. It would bring the Holy Spirit. And best of all, it would create the desire in their hearts to obey that they had been lacking. Unlike the Mosaic covenant, it wouldn't just tell them what to do. It would make them want to do it. But in the Old Testament, it was promised. It wasn't yet given they didn't get it in the Old Testament. They were only promised it. And so as we enter our story this morning, we have to remember we are still under the law. The Israelites did not yet have the new covenant. Their relationship with God in this life, enjoying the blessings of God, was still determined by the law. They had to obey the law. So now we're going to enter into the next phase of this story. I'd like you to turn to Matthew chapter 1. So this is the very beginning of your New Testament. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to start right at the beginning. It's very helpful when you approach a book like Matthew and all of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 
to remember that during this point in Scripture, we had not yet entered the new era that we live in. And what I mean by that is most people turn to Matthew 1 and they think, well, Old Testament is over. All of that way of life is over. Now we're into our era. We're learning about us. No, we're not. Until Jesus dies on the cross, we are still in the old era. Until Jesus dies on the cross, which is Matthew chapter 27, the nation of Israel was still under the law. They still did not have the new covenant. And so I like to tell my classes I teach that actually Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they really should be part of the Old Testament because they are the old way until Jesus dies on the cross. Israel is still under the law. And so how is God going to redeem these people under the law? Well, that's the story this morning. We're going to discover God's surprising solution to the problem of sin. God's surprising solution to bring humanity back to the garden. It's a surprise because no one in the Old Testament expected what we're going to learn today. No one saw these events coming. It's shocking how God is going to fix what we had broken. This surprising solution is all about one man. And so finally, it's time to get to the main event. Jesus, the seventh chapter in this story, is bigger and better than all the others. This is what the story is all about. Everything in the Old Testament was pointing forward to Jesus. He is the main event. So this is very exciting as we meet Jesus for the first time here in Scripture in Matthew chapter 1. So if you'll read with me starting in Matthew chapter 1 verse 1. The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez, on and on. The book of Matthew begins in a really weird way. It begins with a genealogy. It's kind of boring. Why would Matthew start that way? Well, because genetics matter. Remember, all the way back to the beginning of our story, what did God say? It will be a son of Eve who will crush our enemy and deliver us from sin. But, but then later he said, not just any son of Eve, a son of Abraham. It'll be a child of Abraham who will deliver us. But then later he said, not just any child of Abraham, it'll be descendant of David who will crush our enemy. And so Matthew has to begin with this incredibly important fact that Jesus is qualified to be our king, our deliverer by genetics. He has the right blood flowing through his veins. He is a son of Eve, a son of Abraham, a son of David. However, there were a lot of male Israelites in that time period who were descended from David. So how do we know that this particular descendant of David is the king of kings we've been looking forward to? That is settled in the baptism account. So turn just a little bit over in your, in your word into uh, chapter 3. Really important event. We tend to think of the baptism of Jesus as like a story you teach your kids about. It's actually incredibly meaningful. Really, really significant. Look at me at chapter 3, verse 16. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened. And he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This isn't just a baptism moment. When Jesus is baptized, what's happening is God is appointing him as the king. That's what this moment is about. In the Old Testament, how is a king anointed? Usually with oil put on his head. Jesus is anointed with something better, with the Holy Spirit. And once the Holy Spirit anoints Jesus, God the Father says from heaven, this is my beloved son. And we hear son and we think second member of the Trinity. No, not yet. At this point in the Bible, the Son of God was simply a term or a title for the King of Israel. And so God from heaven is saying, this is my King. This is the one you've been looking forward to. So Jesus is appointed by God to be King in the baptism. However, there had been a lot of kings of Israel and they had all failed. Even David himself, all of them had committed sin, and as a result, they had failed to receive all of God's promised blessings, all the blessings of the covenant, and Israel had suffered. So how do we know this king is going to be any different than all the kings that preceded him? That is settled in the next chapter. Another one of those stories that we tend to teach our kids without realizing how incredibly significant it is, the temptation account. 
chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. What is this? This is God setting up Genesis 3 again. This is a redo. This is back to the garden. The enemy has come. God allows Satan to come and tempt this one human being. And how does this one human being do? If you've read the story, you know he's not like Adam. He's a new and better Adam. He succeeds where Adam failed. He doesn't give in. It's fascinating, actually. Every time that Satan tempts him, do you know what Jesus does? He quotes the law. Book of Deuteronomy, to be specific. Why does he quote the law? He's telling you something. He's telling you, I will obey. I'm the one guy who will ever obey the entire law. And Jesus does. He passes the temptation. This is monumental. You realize no human had ever done what you're reading here. Never. He is the first and only human being to fully and completely obey God. So what does that mean? That means he's the first person to ever pass that test of the law. Only one to ever make it. So what does he get? Everything. From this point forward, it's all his. He receives all of the promises. They're all his. And so from this point forward in our story, Jesus begins to speak like a king because he's been proven by his obedience to be the king of kings who deserves all of the blessings and all of the authority. So from this point on now, Jesus is going to speak and act like he is the king of kings we have been waiting for. You see him begin to speak as the king in this chapter. Just a little bit later, if you look about halfway through chapter 4, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is a command. Repent, for the kingdom from heaven, the kingdom he's bringing to earth, is at hand. It's here. The king has arrived. Now, what does that word repent mean? It's a common word in scripture, common word in church settings. Repent, it just means turn away from something bad to something good to avoid God's punishment. But you have to figure out what's the bad and what's the good from the context. So what's the context here? Well, he's speaking to Israel. And what did they need to start doing if they were going to enjoy the blessings that God had in store for them? The law. Remember, we're still under the law. So here, when he says repent, Jesus is just repeating the Old Testament. This is Old Testament talk. Jesus is telling the nation of Israel, it is time for you to come back to the Mosaic law because you're still under the law. And you cannot enjoy all of these blessings I have earned unless you obey the law. So he's calling the nation of Israel back to the law. I think it's really important to clarify that because I've heard this verse used many times as part of the gospel that we preach. So people will say, well, to be saved, to go to heaven, you have to believe and repent of all your sins. No, 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 no. This is about the law, and the law is never about salvation. Salvation is always by faith alone. Repentance and and the law here, that's about how the nation of Israel could enjoy the Abrahamic covenant blessings in their lifetime. That's what this verse is about. It's not our gospel. This is Jesus as king speaking to the nation of Israel. He wants them to return to the law and obey it so they can enjoy God's blessings in this life. But there was a problem. Jesus' audience thought they were already doing a great job with the law. And we're talking particularly about the Pharisees. The religious leaders of Israel in the time of Jesus, these were uh, very rich men who had enough time, because of all their wealth, to take the entire Mosaic law and boil it down to a checklist of about 615 commands. And they spent all day, every day, keeping the list. They got so good at keeping the list that they began to see themselves as righteous. We call that legalism. It's righteousness by list-keeping. So they kept this list. So they thought, well, we don't need Jesus. We don't need a savior. We don't need your help. We've got this covered. And so what Jesus does next is he preaches his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. That's Matthew 5 through Matthew 7. This amazing, beautiful, wonderful sermon is often misunderstood by people. The key to understanding the Sermon on the Mount, again, that's Matthew 5 through 7, is you have to understand it is all bad news designed to get his entire audience desperate. The Sermon on the Mount includes no good news. No good news at all. At all. 
It's all bad news designed to get all of them lost. And so what does Jesus do in the Sermon on the Mount? Well, if you've read it, you know that what he's going to do is he's going to show them that they're not as great as they thought they were by taking something that they thought they had mastered and showing them what it really takes. So he takes murder, for example. Okay, didn't kill anyone. I'm good. He said, no, no, no. If you really want to obey that, you can't even hate someone. Adultery. Okay, got that covered. No, no. If you want to obey that, you can't even lust in your heart. Jesus takes the law and he raises it up to help them to see how far they fall short. And he draws it all to a head, to a point in the most depressing verse in this entire sermon. See into chapter 5, verse 48. This is a devastating verse. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. If you think you have the law mastered, If you think you don't need me, this is how perfect you have to be, as perfect as God is. And so keep that in mind as we turn forward just a little bit. Look at chapter 7, another often misunderstood passage of Scripture. Chapter 7, verse 13. Jesus says, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Based on the context of the Sermon on the Mount, how narrow is the good gate? Well, only one guy got in. It's perfection. It was in chapter 5. You want to walk through the narrow gate? You must be as perfect as God the Father is. Every human being other than Jesus is on the wide path to destruction because none of us can keep the law. There is no good news here. It is all bad news to get them all desperate. So Jesus preaches this incredibly bad news, and then he does something that for his audience is even worse. He does a bunch of miracles to show that he actually has authority to be saying this stuff. He proves, yeah, I am the king. I get to tell you what the law is through his miracles. So Israel is at a crisis moment. They're in trouble. Their king is here and they're not ready. So what are they going to do? Well, Jesus tells them in Matthew 11. Turn to Matthew 11, the end of the chapter. One of the most significant passages in the whole book of Matthew. Really, really significant. Here is Jesus' application for the nation of Israel. Verses 28 through 30. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Who at this point in the story should be weary and heavy laden? Everyone who's been paying attention. Everyone who's been following what Jesus is saying is feeling incredibly weary and desperate. And so Jesus says, okay, come to me. And when he says yoke, what is that? That's king language. He said, I'm the king. You need to bow. Come to me and bow to me, and I will give you rest. And, and what he means, is that he's not talking about heaven. He's talking about the covenants. I will bring that, that rest, that shalom, that peace, that joy you've been looking for. I will bring it all into your life if you will just bow the knee and receive me as king of Israel right now. That was what they needed to do. And so now Israel faced a choice. They could accept Jesus as their king or reject him. This is the moment. Okay? We spent 11 chapters building up to this moment. Jesus has offered himself as the king. They must make their choice. You know where this is headed. They choose to reject him. The nation rejects Jesus, and so Jesus actually rejects them. This is the last time in the book of Matthew that Jesus offers himself as king to Israel. From this moment on, he's headed to the cross because they blew it. They rejected him, so he rejects them. He heads to the cross, and on the cross, it seems like God's plan had failed. Like Satan had won. The king is dead. But Satan was as wrong as he could be. Actually, the cross is where Satan was defeated. The the cross is the way God kept that promise. We learned all the way back at the beginning, Genesis chapter 3. What did God said? How is God going to crush our enemy Satan and deliver us from sin? Well, son of Eve is going to give his life to defeat our enemy. He's going to crush the head of the serpent. The serpent's going to bite him on the heel. Both will die. We will win. That's what Jesus does on the cross. That's why this is such an incredible surprise, is that Jesus takes the epitome of evil, which is a crucifix. In the ancient, we wear them around our necks. They never did that. 
It was the most torturous way of killing someone you hated. Jesus takes the symbol of evil and uses it to defeat evil once and for all. And that's a point that Paul brings out in Colossians chapter 2. Having disarmed the demonic powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. I love that line. No one would have ever thought you could win by going to a cross. That was the ultimate defeat in the ancient world. And yet Jesus uses that place of ultimate defeat to defeat all of our enemies once and for all. That's the great surprise. He turns it around. He wins at the cross. And because of the cross, there are amazing things that are true for you and I that would not have been true otherwise. What did Jesus win for us at the cross? Well, first and foremost, forgiveness of sins. We can be forgiven of our sins only because Jesus went to the cross. The cross is what makes forgiveness possible. So one of the things to know about our God is that he is holy and righteous. He, He always brings and acts in justice. And so God can't simply sweep our sin under the rug and ignore it. No, the universe would not be righteous if God did that. God must punish sin. And so what does Jesus do on the cross? He takes all of our sin upon himself and takes our punishment in our place so that God can let us go free. God can forgive us. It is the cross that made forgiveness possible. Paul says in Ephesians 1, in him that is in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. It's through his blood, through his death on the cross that forgiveness is possible. That's not just true for us. That's true for everyone who came before us. We've talked about this before. All of the animals sacrificed in the law, they didn't bring forgiveness for anyone. Because a a goat, a pigeon, they can't take away human sin. All people, from Adam to whoever the last person is, all people who find forgiveness, find forgiveness through the cross. It's always by Jesus. Now, how can that be true of people who lived before Jesus? Well, we believe in a God who stands above time. So he can apply the death of Jesus to everyone, whether before or after the cross. Everyone who is ever saved will be saved based on the death of Jesus because that's the only thing that could ever make forgiveness possible. So by dying on the cross, Jesus has made forgiveness possible for the human race. Second thing that he made possible, the new covenant. Remember, the new covenant was promised in the Old Testament, but they didn't get it. Why? Because there was another covenant in the way. The Mosaic Covenant was still there. And and you can't just set aside willy-nilly a divine covenant. Israel couldn't just wish away the Mosaic Covenant. God had to do something. And so on the cross, what did Jesus do? He took all of the curses of the Mosaic Covenant upon himself and satisfied them. And in his perfect life, he earned all the blessings of the Mosaic Covenant. So by earning all the blessings and paying for all the curses, he earned the right to set it aside. And so it has been set aside. The Mosaic Covenant and the law are finished. They're done. They're gone. They have been replaced with the new covenant. And so we're told in Luke 22, he, that is Jesus, took the cup after they had eaten. This is part of the last supper right before he died. And he says, this cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. That's what we celebrate every time we take communion. We're celebrating the fact that we get the new covenant that they did not. We get it. Because we live after the death of Jesus. We get this new thing, this wonderful thing, this new covenant. It's Jesus' death that made it possible. Third thing that Jesus made possible for us in his death on the cross, eternal life. We're told in in Hebrews chapter 2, Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. When Jesus defeated Satan on the cross, he also defeated death for us. We don't need to fear death because Jesus died in our place. He earned for us everlasting life in heaven on the cross. Now, these are amazing things that we have apparently earned by Jesus going to the cross. We've received these things through what Jesus did, but how do we know? How do you know you have forgiveness of your sins? How do you know you have the new covenant in your life? How do you know you have eternal life and are going to go to heaven when you die? Because Jesus rose from the dead. 
the resurrection is, actu- is absolutely essential to the story. Without the resurrection, this story is a Greek tragedy. There is no hope in it. If Jesus didn't rise, you're not going to rise. There's nothing to hope for. But Jesus did rise from the dead. And that's what proves that all of these amazing blessings are yours for the taking. They're yours to have. I I heard it years ago that that when Jesus rose from the dead, it was like the receipt printing when you buy something at Target. That's the moment you know it's yours. If the receipt hasn't printed, you don't get to walk out of that store. You're a shoplifter. You got to wait for the receipt to print. That's Jesus rising from the dead. It is God's receipt that now all of this belongs to you. There's so much more that we could say about Jesus and his death and his resurrection, but we don't have time because we have two more chapters. We got to keep going. And so let's see how Jesus's death lays the foundation for the next chapter of the church. Now we're finally to your part of the story. So congratulations, you made it finally to where you fit in us living during the church age. So turn to Ephesians chapter one. Ephesians chapter 1. For those of you who were here during the very first week, you might remember the big idea of the Bible. The big idea from cover to cover of Scripture said that the big idea is that God desires to glorify himself by establishing his kingdom on earth through us, through humanity. That's the story of the Bible. God glorifying himself by establishing his kingdom on earth through us. But what does kingdom mean? That's kind of a weird word. We don't use it every day. Kingdom is simply the rule of God on earth. It's how God is reigning on earth. And the kingdom of God on earth has looked different at different times. There was one form of the kingdom of God back in the garden. There was a different form we call the theocratic kingdom when Moses was alive. Then when David and Solomon came along, we call that the Davidic kingdom of God. All these different forms of the kingdom of God on earth. Well, here's what Paul says in Colossians chapter 1. He, that is uh, God, the Father, rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. You, here this morning, are part of the newest form of the kingdom of God. That's the first thing that we would say about the church. The church is simply a new form of the kingdom of God on earth. It's quite different, though, than the form that preceded it. So what was the kingdom of God on earth before the church? It was the nation of Israel. An actual geopolitical nation with a king, with rulers, with an economy, with currency, with an army, with soldiers. That was the form of God's kingdom on earth back then. The church is a totally new form of the kingdom of God on earth. And what does this new form of the kingdom of God look like? What is it? Well, look at Ephesians 1, the end of the chapter, verse 22. Here's what the church is. Verse 22, he put all things in subjection under his feet. That's Jesus' feet. And gave Jesus as head over all things to the church, which is his body. The fullness of him who fills all in all. So if you want to answer the question, what is the church? I think the easiest answer is it's the body of Christ on earth. That's what we are. The church is the body of Christ. It's not a building. Even when Creekside built this new building, that new building is not the church. Just building, just sticks and bricks. The church is the body of Christ on earth. It's people. It's the body of Christ on earth. It's not a nation. It's not a particular ethnicity. It's not an organization. It's not a club. I love this language that the Bible uses. It's a body. It's a living thing. We are united together by what? By the love of God with Jesus as our leader. The church is the body of Christ on earth today, and it is open to all people. It's made up of all ethnicities. The Jews are going to come into the church in Acts 2. Samaritans come in, Acts 8. Gentiles, that's the rest of us, come in, Acts chapter 10. From that point on, all people on earth are welcome on equal terms into this body of Christ, the church. And that's a radical thing. That's an unprecedented thing, that there would be this body, this family that is open to all people, regardless of race, economic level, language, whatever it might be, all are welcome in one body. That's an incredible thing. That's so incredible, in fact, that the New Testament is going to go on. It's going to tell us that 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 idea, all people of all races being welcome on equal terms into one body, that is actually the solution to all of our world's problems. When you look at the world at large, if you click on CNN or Fox News or something like that today, and you look at the world, how would you describe it? Divided, 
hostile. It's full of hatred, violence, war, oppression, all of these awful things. Well, how do you fix all of those awful things? Well, education, politics, science, those are good things. They can't fix problems that deep. Only one thing can't, the church. We are the solution to every problem our world faces because we are the body of Christ on earth today. We're the solution to the problems that our world faces. So the church, it's a new form of the kingdom of God. It is the body of Christ. And at this point, it should be obvious, it's not Israel. The church is not Israel. Now, let me be clear, just in case you, you're not, if you may not know this from being at other churches. When we say that the church is not Israel, we are saying something different than what you would hear in a typical Presbyterian, Lutheran, or Catholic church. They do believe that the church is Israel. We don't. And so that leads to some very practical differences that you may have noticed at our church, but not known why. So practical difference number one, we do not try to keep the Mosaic law. Our goal in life is not to obey the Mosaic law because that was for Israel. It's not for us. We try to follow Jesus. That's our goal. Follow the commands of Jesus Christ. Now, not surprisingly, there's quite a lot of overlap between the Mosaic law and the commands of Jesus. But Jesus sets some of this aside, like the Sabbath. No longer have to keep that law. And the ceremonial laws and the dietary laws. No longer have to keep any of that. And, and sometimes Jesus took something that was said in the law and he raises it to a whole other level. Like the law said, do not murder. Jesus says, uh-uh, that's not nearly enough. Don't even hate. So we don't seek to follow the Mosaic law. The law was for Israel, not for the church. We seek to follow Jesus. That's the first practical difference. Second practical difference, we don't baptize our babies. Why do some churches baptize their infants? Well, ultimately it's because they believe the church is Israel. And they notice that in the Old Testament, Israel would take their infant babies and join them to the covenant community. How would they do that? Through circumcision. The New Testament's kind of down on circumcision, so those churches replace circumcision with this new ceremony, with baptism. So they baptize their babies to join them to the covenant community because they believe we're Israel. Our church doesn't believe that. So our church doesn't practice that. Our church simply does baptism like we see it in the New Testament. You baptize believers. As soon as someone says they believe in Jesus, you dunk them in water. So that's what we do. Third practical difference for us. We believe that because the church isn't Israel, we as a church shouldn't seek political power. The church tried to do that for about a thousand years and it went really, really badly. That was because the church misunderstood their place in the world. They thought they were the new Israel, so they tried to do Israel stuff, build an army, take power. No, that is not our place in this world. The church has no business amassing political power. We should never try to force a nation or a group to follow our rules. That is not our role on earth. Now, we have to clarify. As individual believers, each and every one of us should be a good citizen of whatever nation you, you belong to. So if you're an American citizen, what does that mean? Well, you as an individual should educate yourself. You should vote wisely. You should advocate for good rules. You you could even run for office. That's all great. But you're doing that as an individual Christian. We don't do that as a church. Because the church, as the body of Christ on earth, is not a political entity. It's not a national entity. It's not a military entity. It is open to all people on equal terms, regardless of race, nation, or ethnicity. Okay, so... If the church isn't Israel, that does beg a couple questions. Um, First of all, so when exactly did the church begin? If it's a new thing, when did it begin? Well, Acts chapter 2 tells us this. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. This is the moment, Pentecost, 50 days after uh, the Passover, uh, after the death of Jesus, when the Holy Spirit came upon the church. The Holy Spirit descends and comes to live within individual believers. This is a totally new thing. This is, a lot of people don't know this. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit never did this. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit never came to live inside a person. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit might come and give some particular person power for some particular task. Easiest example of that is Samson had that crazy strength. Why? The Holy Spirit gave it to him. But when Samson sinned, what did the Holy Spirit do? He left. And Samson was weak again. 
Well, that's not what's going on with you. The Holy Spirit's not just giving you power. The Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you forever. That's the new covenant promise. That's what God said would happen in the new covenant era. His own spirit would come to reside inside of you. In the Old Testament, the presence of God on earth was in the Holy of Holies, the temple, this actual building. In this era, the presence of God on earth is not in a building, it's in people. It's inside you. It's inside me. The Holy Spirit has come to live inside of us. That's what makes us part of the church. We're told in 1 Corinthians 12, for by one spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, we were all baptized into this one body, the body of Christ, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we are all made to drink of one spirit. It's the Holy Spirit coming inside of you that makes you a member of the church. It's not a membership class. It's not signing up for a small group. It's the Holy Spirit. He comes to live inside of you, and that makes you a part of the body of Christ. And that ministry of the Spirit didn't begin until Acts chapter 2. So that's the answer to our question. The church that we're part of, it began Acts chapter 2. Wasn't present before that. In fact, they didn't even know that it was coming. It was such an incredible surprise to them. Second question that people often wonder. If all of these amazing promises that we enjoy, like the Holy Spirit and forgiveness, all of them in the Old Testament were promised only to the nation of Israel, only to the descendants of Abraham. So how is it that you and me, I'm a Gentile, probably many of you are Gentiles, meaning not Jews, how is it that we get to enjoy the promises that in the Old Testament were only meant for the family of Abraham? What Paul tells us in Galatians 3, verse 16. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds is referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed that is Christ. That's a really confusing verse that is phenomenally profound. I love this verse. What is Paul saying? Paul is saying, I got a surprise for you. All the way back, the very beginning, over here with promise. When you thought that all these promises were meant for the whole family of Abraham, guess what? They're only meant for one. Which one? The one who would follow this. The one who would obey this. The one and only who would pass the test of the law. That is Christ. All the promises were for him alone. So Jesus, the one ideal Jew, the one perfect Jew, he fully obeyed. And as a result, all the promises are his. They don't belong to the Jews. They belong to the Jew, the one. I call him the super Jew. He is what the Jews were meant to be. Jesus has it all. And so oftentimes people uh, debate about that land in in we call Israel today. Does the land of Israel, does it belong to the Jews or the Palestinians? Answer is neither. It belongs to Jesus. It's his land. He's the only one who obeyed the rules. So it's all his land. All of the covenant blessings belong to Jesus. Okay, well, we're not Jesus. So how is it that we get to enjoy what belongs only to Jesus? Well, Paul tells us later in that chapter, for all of you who are baptized into Christ, that is all believers, have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ and you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. How is it that you and me who are not Jesus get to enjoy all these blessings that Jesus earned because of the phrase it's underlined? It's Paul's favorite prepositional phrase. We are in Christ Jesus. We are placed in Christ so that everything that is true of Christ is true for us as well. We get to share in the blessings he earned because God has placed us into him. In Christ, you are actually a descendant of Abraham. Genetically, you're not, but doesn't matter. You're in the ultimate Jew. In Christ, you are an heir to all of the covenant blessings, not because you're actually a descendant of Abraham, but because you're in Christ and he owns it all. Everything good in the life of a Gentile and the life of a Jew comes to us in Christ. So a Jewish believer today doesn't get anything you Gentiles don't get. And you Gentiles don't get anything a Jewish believer doesn't get. We are all in this thing on equal terms. That's what's so incredibly beautiful about the church. It's a family that welcomes all people on equal terms and blesses all of us outrageously in Christ Jesus. And that's the the core of the good news that we share. What is our gospel? Our gospel 
is that men and women from all ethnicities, all nationalities can receive forgiveness of sins and the new covenant and eternal life if they will simply believe in Jesus. If they'll trust in Jesus as their Savior, that he died for them and rose from the dead, then they are placed by God in Christ. They receive the Holy Spirit. They receive all the blessings and they'll live forever, not because they earned it, but because Jesus did. And what's true of Jesus is now true of them. That's the good news of the church. And I could keep talking about that for the rest of the morning, but we still have one chapter to go. So let's finish this up. Chapter 9, Shalom. Turn to Revelation chapter 21. So... I said cover to cover. We're going literally cover to cover. Started at the beginning. Now we're going to the end. Revelation 21. Uh, the particular shirt that I wore this morning, I call this my Johnny Cash shirt. I love this shirt. Johnny Cash is my favorite songwriter. I feel like this is what he would wear if he were preaching to you today. I like Johnny Cash's songwriting because he loves to quote scripture, and particularly if you've listened to a lot of his songs, particularly the book of Revelation. He loved the book. He used it in some of his most famous songs that he ever wrote, like When Man Comes Around and Ain't No Grave. He, he loved to capture the imagery here and sing about it as if it's really going to come true. And, and I think the best passage in this whole book, this whole book of Revelation, is right here in Revelation 21. This is the end of the story. We're going to begin with the end. So this is the very end. When all is said and done, here is what we will experience. Revelation chapter 21, starting in verse 1. Then I, this is John, saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. We call this final chapter shalom. That's the Hebrew word for peace, but it means so much more than peace in English. Hebrew shalom means the peace that you will have when all of God's promises to you are fulfilled. When everything he ever promised you has come true, then you will have shalom. You don't have it now. There is not shalom on earth today. We still live in strife. Our enemy, Satan, is still in charge of this world we live in, but that won't last forever. Satan will be defeated, and, and that will happen when Jesus returns. And, and that's the first thing that all Christians can agree on. There's a lot of different views about what exactly is going to happen in the future, but there's some basics that we can all agree on. And, and basic number one that we all agree on is that Jesus is going to come back. He is literally, physically, bodily going to come back to earth. Turn back to the left a page to chapter 19 of Revelation. Chapter 19, verse 11. I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. Jump down to verse 16. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus is coming back. John sees this future event. He comes back, and what's remarkable is how different he looks in the first time. The first time he came to earth, he came as a baby. He came in humility, weakness. He came as a carpenter's son. That won't be true of him the second time. When he comes back, he is the king of kings. He is a terrifyingly powerful figure. And so he comes back in all of this power, and that leads us to the second thing we can all agree on. When he comes back, he wins. He, he wins. It's, it's not even really a battle. He just straight up wins. Look towards the end of chapter 19. Let's pick it up in verse 19. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive in a lake of fire which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which comes from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. It's kind of bleak. What's going on here? Well, this is the most anticlimactic battle that's ever happened in the history of war. Sword of his mouth, that's just metaphorical. It's his word. What we're told is that Jesus is going to say some word, 
And after saying that word, all of his enemies will be dead. Apparently, we're there on horses too. You do nothing. You just sit there and watch. You're not needed. Jesus speaks a word and he wins and it's done. And so Jesus wins. And once Jesus has won, it's time to judge. And so all of us can agree. Jesus is going to judge all of humanity based on our works. Now, when you first hear that, that probably sounds heretical. Because we've said for so long, salvation is by faith alone. Here's the key. There are two judgments coming. And which judgment you experience depends on your faith. Okay, depends on your desire or decision to believe. Those who have chosen to believe in Jesus, our judgment will be at what the Bible calls the judgment seat of Christ. We will stand before Jesus, and here's what it will be like. 2 Corinthians 5.10 For we believers, Paul's talking to us, must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Notice this is not a judgment of your faith. Your faith has already gotten you to the judgment seat of Christ. We think the judgment seat of Christ is in heaven. You're already there by faith alone. But now that you're in heaven by faith alone you got to stand before your Lord, and you got to give an account for how you use this life. All these gifts that he has given you, what did you do with them? He's going to look at your deeds, and if your deeds were good, if you were obedient to Jesus, and he's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master, he's going to reward you. But if you haven't been obedient, then you will miss out on that reward. You're not going to go to hell. You're already in heaven by faith alone, but you will lose the reward. That's the judgment seat of Christ. That's where believers will stand in the future and have our works judged. For unbelievers, they don't stand at the judgment seat of Christ. They don't stand before Jesus at all, as best we can tell. They will face the great white throne judgment. You find that a little bit later in the book of Revelation if you turn to chapter 20. Towards the end of chapter 20, verse 11... This apparently happens later, after Jesus has already returned. Verse 11 of chapter 20. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, this is God the Father, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. He shows up at the great white throne and the universe disintegrates. I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. Jump down to verse 15. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown in the lake of fire. So God the Father shows up, the universe dissolves, and humanity stands before him. But what group of humanity? Well, those whose names are not found in the book of life. Those who are not believers, you are not at the great white throne. If you've trusted in Jesus, you are exempted from that. You were judged at the judgment seat of Christ. This is for those whose names aren't in the book of life. So these are people who rejected the salvation offered to them for free in Jesus. They said, no, I don't want that. And so God says, okay, so let's see, having turned down my gift, let's see if you earned your way in. That's that's what you wanted ultimately. You wanted to stand on your own two feet before me. So let's see how you did. And they opened the book of works. And If somebody tries to earn their way into heaven, what's the result? It's always the same. You fail. Because Jesus said perfection is required. And so they are condemned. So two judgments. That's the key to understand. All humans will be judged based on our works. But which judgment you face depends on your faith. Okay? So Jesus is coming and judgment with him. The final, the fourth thing that we can all agree on is after judgment is done, Jesus will fix all that is broken. And that's what we read about in Revelation 21. This is the creation of the new heavens and the new earth. Jesus will recreate. And and it's wonderful when you read about the new heavens and the new earth. This place that is free of pain. It is free of shame. It is free of sin and guilt. It really is a return to the garden. That's what it's about is Jesus is creating a new and better garden. And it's fascinating actually at the end of the story in Revelation 21. Guess what shows back up for the first time? the tree of life. It disappeared at the very beginning, but it's back in the new heavens, in the new earth. And what that tells us is that the end of the story is like the beginning of the story. Jesus is getting us back to the garden. He is creating a new and better heavens and earth that we can enjoy forever. So that's what all Christians can agree on. Now, how the details work out, that's where we disagree. 
Every church has kind of their own opinion on the details. I don't think the details are nearly as important, but if you're curious about them, I've given you a chart because I like charts. So there you are. On your handout, it looks like this. There's a whole lot of stuff we think is going to happen in the future. We're not positive about this. But it seems to us as we read the Old Testament that because God promised the actual land from the Nile River to the Euphrates River to the descendants of Abraham and they've never had it, it seems to us that God probably is going to fulfill that in the future. So we believe there's a literal future for the nation of Israel when Jesus comes back. And how will those events play out? Well, we think probably the next thing to happen is the rapture of the church. The church will go home to be with Jesus, and then there'll be a great tribulation on earth. It's talked about in the Gospels. It's also talked about in the book of Daniel. We think it'll last seven years. The point of the great tribulation, evil begins to triumph on earth, but the, the result of that is that the Jews are persecuted and they finally bow the knee to Jesus. It's actually what the Great Tribulation is about. Bring Israel to their knees. Receive Jesus. They accept Jesus. And as soon as they do, Jesus comes back, speaks a word. Enemies are wiped out. And Jesus creates what we call the millennial kingdom. Thousand-year rule of Jesus on this earth when he's fulfilling all of the promises that were made to Israel. Everything is, is as good as it's ever been. It's a wonderful time on earth. Maybe we'll be there. We're not sure how those details play out. Into the millennial kingdom, Satan is released one last time to deceive the nations. There's one big battle. It's as anticlimactic as the preceding one. Enemies are all wiped out. God shows up. Great white throne. New heavens and new earth. Get not sure of all those details. What we do know is at the end, we are back in the garden. When you look at the story arc of the Bible, we go from the garden to the garden. We go from very good to very good, and the way we do that is through Jesus. He is the center of the story. He's what it's all about. He's the one who makes it possible for sinners like us who were kicked out of the garden to get back to the garden. The end of the story is very, very good. So, That's the Bible in nine words. If you will commit those words to memory, like I said, you will know the storyline of the Bible. That's how it plays out. I'm going to close in prayer in a moment, and then just like I have on all three of these sermons, I'm going to invite you, if you have questions, come on up. Let's talk about this until, you know, the next service starts. You're welcome to ask me any questions you have about the storyline of the Bible. Heavenly Father, we praise you and we thank you that the story you have written in Scripture has a very good ending. We praise you, God, that when we lost the garden, you didn't give up on us. Instead, at at great cost to yourself, you began an amazing plan, a surprising plan, a beautiful plan to save us from our sins and to bring us back into your presence, into your garden, and we look so forward to that. We praise you and thank you, Jesus, that you decided freely to die in our place to take our punishment, and then to rise from the dead and offer to us your righteousness as a free gift. We praise you for that, Jesus. You have made everything possible. We praise you that because we have trusted in you, we are in you, and as a result, we have all of your blessings for free. We're so grateful, Jesus, for all that you've made possible. We look so forward to your return when you will bring a new heavens and a new earth. You will bring us back to the garden to enjoy your presence forever. We praise you and thank you. You are worthy, God. What an amazing story you have told. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. If you have questions, come on up.